0: Hey everybody! Hey everybody! We got an amazing show for you today on this week in startups. Two awesome guests for the price of one. First, my friend of the pod and digital ad veteran Zach Colius is with us, and we're going to break down some of Google's new ad policy changes around attribution. And then, amazingly, Michael Dell, the founder of Dell, is on the program. He's got an amazing new book out that you're going to want to pre-order right now. Or depending on when you're listening to this, you might be able to order it. It's called "Play Nice, But Win." Amazing guest, we go deep, uh, really just a legend in the tech industry and a delight for me to have him on the program. Probably one of those episodes you're going to want to listen to two three times because there's a lot of nuggets in there about how to build a world-changing company and make sure you order the book. Okay,
1: stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash This Week in Startups, MicroAcquire, the startup acquisition marketplace. Start the right acquisition conversations at your own pace. Get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. Say goodbye to brokers and meet your ideal buyer today. Go to try.microacquire.com slash twist and NordVPN, improving VPN services globally. Access content from over 59 different countries and stay safe online. Go to nordvpn.com slash twist or use code twist at checkout to get 73% off a two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. Okay, with us
0: again today, friend of the pod, Zach Coleus, who is uh, an angel, syndicate, fund, investor, friend of startups, amazing, amazing investor and... Also, formerly advertising tech executive, and he's going to tell us today a little bit about the changes afoot in the Google ecosystem.
2: Yeah, that's exciting. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Always all love, right. always love our company.
0: Yes, uh, I mean, it, you, when we do our ask Jason and Zachs, those have become quite a uh, phenomenon. You get a lot of people uh, mentioning founders, mentioning they watch it.
2: Well, uh, yeah, no, I, I people ping me about that all the time. You know, I just figured it's because you have this massive reach and, you yeah. know, the world listens to what you have to say. I'm just drafting off of you. Uh, um, well,
0: you earn your keep with your great uh, commentary. So tell us, wh- what is a foot?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, the big change is that so traditionally, Google and uh, search advertising has been built on, and this we get really wonky and esoteric, but but it's actually really important, uh, has built on what's called last click attribution. And so the way that works is you go, you buy Google search ads. And I go to Google and I need some new tires for my car. And I'm like, snow tires for, you know, car. And boom, the ads come up. At the top of it, Tire Rack has paid Google to put their ad at the very top of that search result. I click on that ad. I go to Tire Rack. I buy some tires. They send it to my house. All done. And Google claims credit for basically delivering that $1,000 in sales to, um, to Tire Rack. And so that's what we call traditional um, last click attribution. And, you know, Google's had that for 20 plus years now. And the entire industry is built off of that. Now, if you think about it, it makes sense when you're thinking about search. But for the rest of the advertising ecosystem, it doesn't make any sense at all. So when I'm driving down the street, I don't go click on a billboard. Like when I see a YouTube ad, I watch a television ad. I don't go click on those things. Those are things that put ideas into my head so that when I walk into a store or when I go, you know, like decide what beer to order at the bar, those basically ideas are there to basically instruct me in how to buy. Um, so you can think on one hand, you have bottom of the funnel sort of completing a transaction and the other hand, you have effectively brainwashing done right. in a very nice way. Um, and so you can think about it kind of like a baseball game. In baseball, the rule is when you get around to the home plate, you score a point. And so that's the way it's always worked is all the, all the points are scored in that last moment when you get to home plate, even though... Mm getting around the other plates is super important. You didn't really get a point for that. And now Google said, ah, well, we're going to change the rules. And so now if we're going to add credit to other ads that drive transactions, even if they don't necessarily lead to a click and a conversion. And so that's like changing the baseball game, where now if you get to second base, you get half a point. And so you can Ah. imagine if we change the rules of baseball, where if you got the second point, second base, You got half a point. It would change the way that the whole game worked. Everyone would think about it differently. And so that's what Google just did. Now they claim it's a privacy thing. I think that's bullshit. I think it's, they've just decided that their media mix has shifted from being all search. And now YouTube has become so big that they need Mm. to move proper credit to YouTube. And as TV, as digital TV has grown, they need to move credit there as well. And so it's a, it's really a strategic game they're playing.
0: That is fascinating, because you do have a funnel, which you're using the analogy of coming around the bases. And it is fair that if you saw a YouTube ad, and then eventually typed in the name of, you know, if we were talking about Coke Zero or something, and they had a new flavor, Cherry Coke Zero. Uh, you know, if I saw the Cherry Coke Zero ad before a Mr. Beast video, but I didn't click on it then because I wanted to watch the Mr. Beast video on YouTube, But later on, I did a search for Coke Zero, and we knew that happened within, you know, whatever, 90 minutes or nine days. I don't know what the window would be. Yeah, you could say, hey, you do know that that video happened there. And what's the chance of it being a false positive? In other words, the person didn't actually see the video or the video didn't contribute. I think it's very low. So I guess people could always ignore that data as well if they wanted to as a marketer. But this would be a way... This... Does this not signal that YouTube is maybe uh, they're so bullish on YouTube as a business that they really want to get marketers to understand the power of that spend? Is that what's happening here?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, they they effectively Google is creating a black box where where before they were saying, "Hey, you know, click conversion credit," and now they're saying trust us, our black box will tell us where to give you credit. Uh-huh. And we're going to start claiming conversions that didn't have a click, maybe. So oh. then, you know, they'll create, you know, treatment and control groups, and they'll create, you know, people who are shown ads and people who aren't shown ads. And they'll, it's a, there's a way statistically to do this in a relatively straightforward way. But they're, at the end of the day, Google is now going to start claiming credits for conversions that maybe didn't get a click at all. So... Uh-huh. Someone's on YouTube, they see a video, they're like, oh, that's interesting. They wait, you know, a week and then they go type it in directly and they go and buy something. They never go through the search funnel, they never click. Google's gonna be like, Oh, oop, oh, that's ours. We want credit for that. And so and that black box, no one knows how it works. Um mm. and it's gonna be interesting to see how it plays out.
0: Because they do own DoubleClick, which does banner ads, they do own YouTube, which does video ads, and they do have um I think I said with the AdSense network is where you can put Google search ads on a, another blog or other website. So this will give them a little more uh, 360 view of how things are going. Does this mean more people will spend money over at Google's ad network maybe than Facebook's? Is that what's driving this a bit is to oh, build this a will more have complete a solution? a huge impact
2: on shift of, of dollars and spend and credit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it will, it will be a very significant impact. Um, huh. and yeah, it's going to be, it's because at the end of the day, like a lot of these advertising businesses, like if you're a tire rack, you, well, tire rack is more sophisticated than this, but for, you know, Google has a million of customers. They, they're not, most of them are not sophisticated to understand how these things work. And so when they, t- when, when suddenly all of a sudden they start to see conversions coming from someplace, they move their spend over there. And so mm-hmm. this is where before a lot of conversions were occurring on Google search. Now those conversions, according to Google's measurement, will be occurring somewhere else, and they'll start shifting dollars and in spend into those other places. And so this Got will it. have a pretty significant impact on spend shift. like it will w- it will be material.:
0: Wow, that is fascinating. And the industry is, is there a loser in this? Is there somebody who is very concerned about this? because it would seem like ad buyers want to see more conversion, they want to have more information, so maybe this is in their best interest or not? Because they do seem to be very advertiser-centric, are they not, Google?
2: It's hard to know, right? Because in the old days, you could say, okay, a click occurred. We know the click occurred. We know the user came through this link, this URL structure. We know who they are. The backend attribution tech tools that maybe you license from Adobe or you license from somewhere else, they can see that click coming in. It's pretty easy to be like, okay, Google sent us that person. Now, basically, that person... Maybe doesn't click on anything. They show up from some path wherever. We don't know where they came from. We don't even know what, how Mm -hmm. they were affected because Google is definitely not going to give per user, you know, attribution level. This user saw these ads here, here and here. And so, and Google's going to be like, ooh, ooh, that's ours. Whereas on the downstream, you don't know. And so in some ways you could see this if you put your evil hat on. This is a way for Google claiming more credit for things that they may or may not have done in order to extract more money from their advertisers. Got it. So this Got is a it. way, like if you're Google, this enables you to extend your continued growth in your advertising share of wallet. Um And and well, Facebook has really been the big driver. Facebook's done this for a long time. And Facebook's been the big driver in pushing Google down this path. And so, um, yeah, it's, we're going to see, you know. Well, we know Google uh, has the uh,
0: credo to do no evil, so I can't imagine they would do anything <laughs> that would be unethical or in any way not in the best interests of consumers. Never.
2: Never. <laughs> it's Alex. impossible.
0: Listen, right now, LinkedIn is going to give you a $100 credit towards your first ad campaign. I want you to go to LinkedIn.com slash This Week in Startups and get that hundy right now. Now, why would you use LinkedIn marketing? high quality leads. We all need leads. We're all running businesses here. My leads? Startup founders. Your leads might be SaaS enterprise. It might be CFOs. It might be CMOs. It might be CTOs. Who knows? Everybody's got a different product, but everybody is on LinkedIn. We all know that because we all use LinkedIn every single day. So if you're planning to launch a new campaign, you know your audience, your team is excited, and everything is going according to plan. We've all been there, except you have that one thought in the back of your head. I be sure that my acquisition campaign will drive high impact leads for my sales team. Well, with LinkedIn ads, you don't need to guess because when you advertise on LinkedIn, your message reaches people who are ready to engage you. LinkedIn equals business, business equals LinkedIn. You know this, it's very simple. So, with 30 million companies engaging and over 71% of professionals using LinkedIn to inform their business decisions, LinkedIn can help bring your growth to the next level. Don't wait. To start achieving your brand and lead gen goals, get a $100 ad credit toward your first LinkedIn campaign at LinkedIn.com slash This Week in Startups. Once again, LinkedIn.com slash This Week in Startups for the hundy, No spaces, no dashes. And terms and conditions apply because they're giving you a hundy. W- knowing what you know about these ad networks and the dark arts here, what percentage of clicks on the internet writ large? Across everything, is let's say uh, fraudulent or bots. If you had to pick a percentage or a range, uh, what is what is the industry's take and what is Zach's take? I mean, it's a big
2: number. Um, it the most of the fraud occurs traditionally, and this kind of actually open mm-hmm. this is this opens a can of worms. Most of the fraud traditionally occurs around unmeasurable areas. So think Mm -hmm. about a click, you know, in, when you measure by the click, if I drive a hundred clicks to your website, you see those hundred clicks come through that URL string. Those users show up. Now they're on your website. You can see what they do. You see how many of them purchase. And then you basically say, okay, I paid you a thousand dollars for those hundred clicks and I got ten thousand dollars in sales. My margin is 20%. Therefore, I made $2,000 in marginal dollars. Therefore, I'm happy to have paid you, you know, $1,000. And if they send you 100 clicks and 100 of them are fraud and you get no dollars in sales, you're like, hey, by the way, I'm not paying you for those clicks. And so with a click attribution, you can pretty clearly delineate what is truly um, effective and what's not. Now, when you move away from clicks, that's where fraud starts to occur. Because now I can basically send a bot over to your website and you don't know where they came from. And Google's like, hey, we we claimed credit for that purchase, but you don't know what they saw. And so like it gets really smushy. So mm-hmm. most of the fraud is attacking traditional stupid TV advertisers who go buy, you know, video ads online. And you see it all the time, right? You're on some shady ass website and like 10 different pop-ups show up with all these autoplay videos and it's like total spam. And like each of those each of those advertisers is getting ripped off. And they're doing the same thing with their bot traffic and they're driving it at that at that of those videos at very high levels. Um, The total percentage of the internet. I don't know. I mean, I don't have access. It's a big number. It's it's billions and billions of dollars of fraud every year.
0: And what the um, resolution to this is, is every system has some fraud, the credit card network has some fraud. And can the advertisers, the publishers and the ad networks agree, at the end of the day, that the fraud is manageable? And as you're saying, if you sent me 100 clicks, and it netted me 2000 in profits at the end of the day, if 10 or 20% were fraudulent clicks, I'm blending that into my cost per click, I'm blending that yeah. into my ad spend, just like a restaurant or a tire shop, my or a catalog person might be like, Yeah, we're gonna have two or 3% or a credit card companies say, Yeah, that's gonna be 2% yeah. 1% fraud. And if you want to, you can pay a higher percentage. For your credit card fees to not get signatures, not look at the card. If you look at the card, you know, you uh, can pay less. Like, I think that's why when you get coffee, they never ask you for your credit card or your ID. And when you buy a flat screen TV, they ask you to see the actual credit card, I guess.
2: Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah. it, it. You know, what happened, what's the unfortunate thing is that it's the unsophisticated advertisers who get ripped off here. So if you're... You know, an old school brand, and you hire a stupid agency. They're going to waste your money. You're going to get taken to the mm-hmm. cleaners. If you're like a small advertiser and you're not sophisticated and you don't have good technology, you, you get taken advantage of. So it's not that the fraud is evenly distributed. Like sophisticated advertisers know how to measure and manage and deal with it, and they can mm-hmm. they can identify the vendors who are who are driving a lot of fraud and they get rid of them rapidly. Um, the unsophisticated folks they get taken to town. And it's most of it's a lot of these old school big brands. You just see like, you know, the the just big old dumb stupid brands, and they just they just lose money. Uh, It's so
0: interesting that they're not building up their internal capability because you know you hire young folks who are super tech savvy who are coming into the space you know as digital natives, and you just say, listen, figure out how these networks work, run a bunch of tests. You could build this muscle internally. It's strange that they don't given how important these channels are to them.
2: I mean, it's... It, the problem is, is that historically, you've got these CMOs who are old-school TV guys and they've been doing TV their whole life and that's how they think about the world. And digital is... They've never really figured it out. And But they've got to move money into digital because they, they have to look like they know what they're doing. And so they're, they go to their agency and they're like, good, spend X percent on digital. Because they can't mm. go to their board and be like, well, I can't spend on digital because I can't figure it out. And so... Mm. And then these agencies, I mean... They're, a lot of them are good at tv and not very good at much else and so they just take the money and they just dump it they're like they go to their vendors and they're like yeah just go spend it and the money just gets spent doing dumb stuff over and over and over again because it's the, the interesting thing so is big.
0: yeah both of those paradigms seem to be ending the paradigm yes. of that cmo is coming to an end yes. they'll retire at some point uh and then uh we have a um a very interesting thing happened i don't know if you're experiencing this but i am inoculating myself to advertising you know hulu has a no ad product i have youtube with pro with no ads netflix and disney and hbo max do not have ads i would say that's the majority of my media consumption right there and the idea of me watching ads and when i pay for nba league pass i paid an extra 40 bucks a year i think to not Uh, have ads but show the local cameras in the arena and my God, it was the best decision I've ever made. My kids do not watch advertising. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't happen in our household. And it, what impact will that have over time? And do you think that that's going to be a trend where consumers just pay that incremental dollar to get advertising out of their video streams? Specifically?
2: I mean, Jason, the one thing you seem to forget is you're rich and not everyone else that's is true. rich. Yeah, so most consumers still pay nothing and they Got still it. get advertised to. But the, yeah. the best way to think about it is you have a continuum. So, like, in the continuum, you have, on one end, you can think about it like TV commercials. So, when you watch yeah. a TV show, it's 30 minutes, but it's how many minutes of uh, sight, sound, and motion? It's, like, like over 12, I think it's 12 right now. Uh, yeah, I think
0: in an hour, it would be over 12. Yeah, I think it's usually when I watch a 30-minute sitcom, it's yeah. usually 21 to 24 minutes. And yeah. that means that would imply six to nine minutes of ads. So, you double yeah. that for an hour.
2: And that's full 18. interruption, sight, Ugh. sound, in motion, where you literally are sitting there watching like commercials, attempting to brainwash. But you and I can remember TV ads we saw when we were kids. Like I can yeah, remember Hulk Hogan's TV ads. I can totally. remember like the 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 um, uh, the My that?
0: Little Pony, My Bud Little bowl. Pony,
2: um, but, like or um, I mean, like so so we uh. were effectively brainwashed when we were kids because back then we watched television commercials. And then on the other end of the continuum, you can think about like a data-driven ad that really knows you. So it knows what you buy. It knows where you live. It knows like everything about you. And that data can be used to deliver really valuable, useful stuff to you. It can be like, hey, here's the thing that we know you want and that you will buy. And you're like, oh, I want that. Can you buy? And those become so good that you don't even notice them as ads anymore because they they enter into your life in a way that's useful and provides value. And so on that continuum, TV commercials, no data. And so they have to interrupt, you know, a third of your life and just brainwash you. And on the other end, it's like becomes almost like it doesn't interrupt you at all because it's so valuable to you. Um, and uh, yeah, it's going to be all interesting right. to see how it plays out. All
0: right. That's uh, Zach Coleus with us, everybody. You can find him on the Twitter. Uh, you can Google him. And if you're looking for that first hundred K to two million, two million. Uh, this is the guy who you want on your board or you want on your <laughs> squad. So. Get, get that Zach check and, and get your startup growing. Stick with us. We'll be back with more. Micro Acquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that cuts out the middleman. Basically, that means they help startups get acquired efficiently. If you've ever had to buy a company or you tried to sell your company, there's all these people in the middle. They're not looking out for you. Micro Acquire is looking out for you. To date, Micro Acquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and has facilitated hundreds of millions of dollars in closed deal volume. Over 100,000 buyers are on the platform right now. It's amazing. I signed up for it. I paid for it. Now they're an advertiser. It's crazy. Thousands of startups are currently listed for sale on the site. And they've had hundreds of successful acquisitions so far because they vet all of the deals they're putting up there and they vet all the buyers. Founders get free and instant access to these 100,000 trusted buyers, while staying totally anonymous. This is not like an open marketplace. If you're a founder looking to sell, Microacquire is free, private, and involves no middle men. On the other side of the marketplace, buyers simply pay $290 a year for access to the platform, like I did, because I might buy some stuff for inside.com. Microacquire helps startups find buyers, simple as that. They'll help you start conversations that can lead to an acquisition in just 30 days for free at try.microacquire.com. twist. slash twist. Go ahead, founders, and check it out. And if you're an acquirer or you're looking to beef up your startup's footprint, you really should just pay the $290 and peruse and see what you could buy there. It's a really cool service. All right, we have a special treat for you today. We have an entrepreneur that I've always looked up to when I was coming up in the tech industry. Started his career by buying IBM PCs and upgrading them from his dorm room with memory chips, hard drives, started making 50 60 70 grand a month and eventually decided maybe i'll even try to make my own computers and those computers went on to change the world uh that brand is dell and that entrepreneur is michael dell his parents uh immigrated from new york city to houston uh, and that's where uh i found out about all of this amazing (laughs) story uh comes from his new book and the new book is play nice play nice but Win." Something my mom always said, play nice. Uh, and you know what? He named it after what his mom told him play nice, but win. Uh, and it is quite a story. The book is a barn burner. Buy it right now. Pause the podcast. Uh, listen to the audiobook. But if you're an entrepreneur, man, it's a hell of a story. Congratulations and welcome to the program, Michael Dell. Thank you, Jason. Great to be with you. The, the book's amazing. And um, uh, you basically tell the story of. The origin story of Dell, your family's story, but also interwoven in a time shifting fashion with the massive drama of taking Dell private, fighting with Carl Icahn, uh, and then interdispersed in the story are amazing moments with Steve Jobs, uh, battling compact and, and everything in between. Why did you take the time now to write your autobiography?
3: Well, I, I wrote a book in the late nineties, which, which, uh, you know, was, was fun and we, we, we'd accomplished a lot in the first, you know, decade and a half of the company, but certainly a lot had occurred in the last decade. And I was also at a place where I'm much more comfortable disclosing things and be, being vulnerable. And I wanted to share a lot of the personal reflections and struggles and challenges and really what I was feeling during all those moments. And so that's what I did. And, you know, uh, with with the go private and the, you know, it was the biggest take private ever in technology. And then we did the biggest acquisition ever in technology and transformed the company and then went public again. A lot of friends encouraged me to write a book about all that. And so here it is.
0: Yeah, and and it's a great story. I mean, the the parts I love about it is the origin story. uh, Pretty amazing to think Uh, you were coming of age in the 80s watching all these PCs. And like myself, you had a subscription to Byte magazine, to PC magazine. You became friends with Jim Seymour, the columnist, who I didn't know was actually in Austin. Uh, But you were obsessed with business at a young age, and you saw this opportunity in PCs what was the opportunity you saw in the personal computer? When did you see it? Uh, and then what, tell, take us to that moment when you decided, I'm not just going to upgrade people's computers and make a couple of grand doing that. Just saying, you know what, this actually is a company I'm going to go direct to consumer.
3: Well, yeah, I was really fortunate, you know, uh, to be, first of all, in a, in a junior high school, public junior high school in Houston, Texas, where there was a teletype terminal and i learned about you know radio shack and the trs80 and byte magazine and it was kind of the dawn of the microprocessor age and and so grew up with all that through junior high school and high school and you know it it, it was kind of a a fun thing to do and to make some extra money and i was teaching kids how to program and upgrading their dad's computers and that sort of thing. It wasn't until my parents told me that I needed to focus on my studies and, and, you know, get serious about college, uh, that I really decided, well, th- this was something more. This was something I really wanted to do for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, I was always fascinated with the power of calculators and computing machines and the idea that anybody could have their own personal computer and program it. That was. Just an incredibly empowering and exciting idea to me. And of course, I had no idea that, you know, it would go from a million or two million computers to billions of them. And, you know, now, you know, five billion people walking around with smartphones. It's it's an incredible world that's that's evolved in the last, you know, several decades here.
0: Yeah. And you you tell this great story of, you know, saving up money. And then going to buy your first computer, your dad's support for that. Maybe tell that story of like when you actually bought your first computer.
3: Yeah, so so I I'd read I'd read in Byte magazine about the Apple II. And mm. it was sort of a, you know, obviously a big leap from the Apple I. And, you know, the TRS 80 was was okay, but the Apple II was, you know, highly programmable and I had uh saved up enough money, you know, doing stamp auctions and all sorts of other kind of entrepreneurial things as a as a kid that I had the money to buy one of these. So I, you know, convinced my parents to let me buy one and um you know, first thing I did was take it apart cuz that 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 was sort of what I did with all electronics because you couldn't really understand how it worked unless you took it apart and Um, you know, it, it, it was, it was a super fun time because computers then were easily understandable. You know, today, you know, it's kind of hard to open them up to begin with, but even if you do open them up, you have a bunch of black boxes, which are, you know, massive ASIC chips that combine all sorts of different functions. Then every single chip, you could understand exactly what it was doing and you could, Actually, program it yourself. You could re- reprogram the BIOS,
0: and all of that was just you know
3: incredibly exciting to me.
0: And you had to open it up to actually put more memory chips in. And they didn't have; there was no internet connections at that time. There was no Ethernet. I mean, to upgrade the machine was a qu- requirement. it Was kind of like owning a muscle car or something at that time, uh, which I think led you to see that first opportunity. Was the first opportunity reali- really that you realized this was too complicated for people to upgrade their own machine So I'll just do it for them or was it the PC i guess it was the PC AT or the PC XT I'm not sure which one you or maybe it was just called IBM PC at that time but you were finding PCs from around the country arbitraging them and then basically adding memory to them and taking the spread on it for people
3: yeah i had a couple of businesses i had yeah. i had the business of you know the, the there the, there there was an inefficient system of how these IBM PCs were being you know uh, allocated across the country and so i had this kind of flying by business where i'd find too many machines in one city and not enough in another city i you know generally on the weekend when i was in when i was in school here in austin i would you know take so- a Th- southwest airlines flight to a city rent a u-haul truck load it up with 50 or 70 pcs fly it to another city you know take you know, you know, make it make make a couple thousand bucks, and you know, head back to Austin. Uh, th- That's th- hilarious.
0: <laughs> I mean, you literally were arbitraging city by city inventory issues and selling these to dentists, etc. Your dad was an author. Well, no, no, that, no that, that that
3: that I was selling them really between computer stores. Ah. Where, where, uh, and and the other thing I was doing was I was upgrading the IBM PCs you know, either buying the basic stripped down IBM PC, put more memory in it, put more floppy drives in it. You know, eventually the hard disk drives started to come along before IBM had the XT, you could add a hard disk drive to a PC. And I would buy hard disk drives and controller cards, write some software, make cables and make a kit to upgrade an IBM PC to have a hard disk drive, which was a big deal at the time because, you know, putting floppy floppy drives in was like super slow. So all that, you know, kind of, uh, I I got this incredible view into not only how people were using them and the power of that, but the whole distribution system was really inefficient. And Mm. it just looked like a, a huge opportunity.
0: Okay, in 2012, childhood friends came together to build NordVPN after spending time apart in different areas of the world. While separated, they saw a growing need for an easily accessible internet security tool, so they created their own VPN, Virtual Private Network. With NordVPN, they're helping people stay safe online and improving VPN services globally. So with NordVPN, you can access content from over 59 different countries by changing your virtual location with one click. It's so elegant and simple to just say, I want to be in the UK now. I want to be in Australia. I want to be in New York. You know what? I use it. And sometimes I pop open my iPad and I'm in Italy and it says, oh, you're in Italy. You can't use Disney Plus. You know what? My kids need to watch a Disney film. Now, on top of all that, do you know how you get hacked? you get hacked because you're on public Wi-Fi. If you use NordVPN, you're just not going to be subject to all those open Wi-Fi hacks. So here's an amazing deal. Go to nordvpn.com twist or use the code twist, T-W-I-S-T, and you will get 73%, 73, not 7%, not 3%, 73% off your two-year plan plus four bonus months for free. So For U.S. customers, NordVPN will cost you about one cup of coffee per month, about three bucks. Claim this offer fast, set it and forget it, and protect yourself forever. It's for a limited time only. That's one of the things I'm struck by in the book is every step of the way, you were not too proud to just take whatever business opportunity was there, uh, capture it, but then you kept looking, what's the next opportunity, what's the next opportunity, next opportunity, and then eventually the idea you did a kind of your own like little secret project to buy the chips yourself and make your own products and customer support was at the core of that and making it personalized but you that innovation of personalizing a pc at the time did not exist in the world you had to hire somebody to personalize your pc but that wasn't a function of what you wanted to do something you had to do because you didn't have money and you were taking people's orders over the phone correct like you sort of stumbled into the customization of a PC.
3: Well, you know, it, it, it. I kind of built the thing that I would have wanted and actually did want you know, as 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 somebody that was using the technology. And because we didn't have enormous amounts of capital, we had a thousand dollars to start. You know, uh, there was no inventory, so we 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 actually created an incredibly efficient supply chain because we had no capital Hmm. and, and the supply chain was the customers told us exactly what they wanted. And we then got that from our suppliers almost the second after, you know, they told us now, of course, it all became electronic over time and, you know, internet people clicking and, you know, you, you have this super elegant supply chain now that, you know, runs like a top, but it, you know, it all started with with a with a you know fairly simple idea that that uh, if you don't have to predict what the customer wants because they're telling you, you don't actually need any finished goods inventory, so you can be way more capital efficient. You know, if we hadn't figured that out, uh, it probably wouldn't have happened.
0: And <laughs> there's so yeah, many exactly. things,
3: that, as you read the book, you know, there's so many things that could have gone wrong in the first two, three, four, five years, which is, I think, true of many startups.
0: Well, including the fact that when you're at, um, when you went to Austin, which college did you go to in Austin? I forgot. University of Texas. University of Texas, and, and that's in Austin, yeah? Uh, yes. And there's this great moment where your parents don't know that you're doing a PC business, or they're kind of hearing from their friends that you're doing it, and your mom and dad decide they're just going to show up in Austin. So they call you from the airport, and you're frantically taking all the PCs, and putting them in your roommate's bathtub. But your parents were absolutely mortified that you were doing this. They, uh, like any good parents, uh, wanted you to be a doctor. They wanted you to go to pre-med, and and you had to break their hearts, didn't you?
3: Yeah, they were, were, uh, you know, horrified at the idea that I would give up the opportunity for a great education. Yeah. And, um, you know... At one point, they, they, you know, I'm sitting there in, in a, in a hotel room with, with my parents. My mom is crying. I'm crying, you know, and she's, she, you know, my dad is, is, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? You know, all, all, all of that kind of, you know, guilt trip stuff. And I talk about it in the book is a very emotional moment. By the way, when I read the audio book, you know, to, to prepare for this. It was way more emotional just reading it than 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 writing it, but that's another story. Well, oh, but you read it yourself? I, I read awesome. it myself.
0: Yeah. And, See, and, they always uh, try to stop you from doing that because they think you're going to quit. But you have <laughs> to read your own audiobook. <laughs> uh, you know, autobiography. Well, there's of another there's another
3: funny part about it. So I'm reading the audiobook and I get to the end, and and they say, "Oh, we don't r- usually uh, do the, the acknowledgements. and I said. Ah. Oh, we don't. Well, in this book, we do the acknowledgements. <laughs> so, so, of course, it was important to me. I mean, this is like this is like yeah. you know my people's my life. So anyway, so my parents are crying. I'm crying. They, you know, make me promise. You know, nobody wants to be there. You know, watching their mom cry. Right. Right. You know, so it's brutal. So, so so they make me promise. You know, to focus on my schoolwork, and I tried to do it, mm. Uh, but it was actually you know, in the days after that, that I really decided that this was what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah, it it is like a seminal moment in every young adult's life, especially entrepreneurs, where you realize this is the path that few people take, but I have no choice but to take it. You find out that your university allows you to take a semester off with no penalty. So you do that and then you break the news to to your parents, but you can always go back. Uh, but we all know where the story went after that. Um, yep, yep. Um, so, uh, at some point, there's an inflection point, and you start selling a heck of a lot of PCs, and then the company goes public. How old were you when you took the company public, and how many people were working at the company at this point?
3: I was uh, 23 years old when we went public. Uh, it was 23! 19- <laughs> <23. laughs> was, it was 1988 and uh i think we had about maybe 150 or 200 people wow something like that and we and we were growing at about 60 70% a year
0: what is the- yeah we we,
3: think- we we grew we grew 80% a year for the first 8 years and 60% a year for the 6 years after that so if you start with any number and you put those numbers in you get to you know 10 10 plus billion
0: think about just the the craziness of that. You were were you the youngest public CEO ever at that point at twenty three?
3: Might have been. I I I actually am s- still the youngest CEO to ever be in the Fortune five hundred. E- right. e- even with all the greats that have, that have followed followed, um but I,
0: you know yeah started started early. What was it like going public back then versus today? Well, I think our
3: IPO was like uh 30 million dollars or you know was So was, like a seed a, round, <laughs> like a like a big exactly. a Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got adjust j- for inflation, but it was the only source of capital. You know, we mm. we were at the point where we were growing so fast and expanding into other countries and hiring tons of people even with the efficient supply chain we needed capital it was the only place to get the capital
1: and And, you started and and we actually
3: did a private placement
0: before we went public um you know about nine months before you started to go to china at that time as well what was going to china in the late 80s like to look at the supply chain what were the factories like What, what was that world like at that time and also Japan, I guess, was, was even bigger, right? I think.
3: Yeah. It, it was, you know, the, 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 the component supply and, you know, uh, advanced technology, a lot of it was in Japan mm. um, and also, you know, Korea, Taiwan. China was sort of just getting going as sort of a place to process, uh, you know, capital and labor and it was kind of basic assembly. So you had a lot of the more simple, you know, uh, you know, components and ingredients that were being bu- starting to be built in and around the the Hong Kong area and the Shenzhen area, and so you know, I would I would go over there and you know meet with the companies and tour the factories and uh, you know really really understand
0: uh, everything that was going on. Yeah, Akihabara was that was it the Akihabara district in Japan like where all the components in were in Tokyo. Yes, yeah. Akihabara.
3: Yeah, it's and I used crazy. to go I used to love going there, still love going there. I I'm, know. I'm fascinated with technology and gadgets and gizmos and they have, you know, the most amazing display
0: of all that there. Yeah, people don't know about Akihabara, but I found out about it when we started in Gadget the Blog somebody who was a super fan of it started emailing us and they're like hey here's pictures from akihabara of like cool stuff and we're like okay we'll pay you ten dollars per blog post to write about akihabara and we would have all these incredible things but you go there and there's a building and you know this is the robotics building and as you go up the floors it's like it starts with the components and as you go up you get like more fully built robots and there's a floor for water robots and flying robots and crawling robots and just one building after the next is like a geek's paradise. It's super, super fun.
3: Yeah, and I, I, started, I started going to Japan, and then in 1987, you know, we started what we call Del Far East, which was our, our kind of uh, technology liaison and procurement organization for, for Asia. And we were working with all the leading Japanese companies because we needed their, dis- you know, their, their displays, their semiconductors, their optical disk drives and, you know, floppy disk drives at the time. And, you know, all the, all the components and ingredients, you know, the Japanese had had great technology. Still, yeah, th- they still had, do, of course.
0: You had a great um, moment. I think it was in South Korea where you looked at the menu and you're like, yeah, three choices, kimchi <laughs> one, two, or three. <laughs> <laughs> when you were in that Korea. Was,
3: i mean it's not like that anymore but but when i was
0: there that that's that's what it was like um so the company goes public it starts to grow and, and you have all these great stories of meeting steve jobs and also becoming friends with uh bill gates and then i think it's a good transition to start talking about uh the company going private and your call i stuff but i just love this era of time where steve jobs actually came to to austin to show off the Apple II, and I'm not sure when you first met Gates, but maybe take us through. Yeah, that was meetings. actually
3: used in Houston, 1980 when I was I was in high school. He 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 came to our
0: Apple user group meeting and, wow. and spoke. What was the, What was he like at that time? Just hippie eating fruit and just crazy? What was Jobs like at the time? What do you remember?
3: What what I remember is it was captivating, and you know he he you know he 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 spoke in broad you know, uh, terms and, and, uh, it was, it was definitely you know, highly memorable and inspirational.
0: Yeah. And when did you first meet Gates? And then I want to talk about the story where Jobs wants you to put Mac OS on every Dell PC.
3: You know, you couldn't make an IBM, uh, compatible computer without MS-DOS. Right. So, you know, you, you definitely, uh, you know, uh, w- went, went to Microsoft, you know, and, and, uh, you know, so I spent a lot of time with, with Bill in, in the early days, uh, you know, licensing DOS and, and, and then through all the adventures of Windows and, and, and beyond. But that, 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 you know, kind of started around 85 when, when, you know, when we started making, making our own, our own machines and, uh our you
0: know our own PCs. What was he like at that time? You know, Bill Peak P- Bill Gates, you know, in Microsoft taking over the world mode.
3: He was aggressive and you know geeky and and uh you know uh definitely uh you know wanted what he wanted, you know. <laughs> yeah. But 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 also also um uh, you know we built we built a strong partnership and it, it
0: was it was yeah for the most part a win-win. H- how was it negotiating with him? Like he was a frontline negotiator, I understand, and pretty aggressive about this is what you're gonna pay for the operating system and you're not gonna work on anybody else's operating system and just his way or the highway, is it true?
3: I wouldn't quite say it was that extreme. And we hmm. actually had other OSs. I mean, we licensed Unix from ATT. And tried to develop our own version of unix in the late 80s that didn't really work out um but uh yeah he he he, he was aggressive but you know the, the, the stories probably exaggerate some of that stuff
0: yeah and so jobs <laughs> gets kicked out of uh apple and he decides to create next and then he starts pitching you on hey maybe dell should make workstations and and the workstation business you don't do that But then he gets back inside of app because there's no apps for Next. I mean, you could buy a Next operating system, but there was literally nothing you could do with it, right? Like you could use the calculator and there's no apps were built for
3: it. Yeah, if you go online, you search Next operating system, Next OS and, and Dell, you'll find some remnants of things that were done. You know, it never really amounted to much. But, you know, as you know, that Next OS became Mac OS. Yeah. And so... You know, Steve had this idea of licensing the Mac OS to us, which we were pretty interested in. Um, but you know, he didn't want us to pay f- for every copy of Mac OS that we used. He wanted us to pay for every PC we shipped and just ship it on every PC, because he was afraid that you know we would wipe out his hardware business. And uh, ultimately, it wasn't wasn't it wasn't a deal that that made sense and and
0: uh, you know it didn't happen. See, I think this is like a seminal moment in the history of both companies that I wasn't aware of. But if you think about that moment in time, um, Dell's were booming; people are buying them like crazy. He wants you to put Windows and Mac OS almost like a dual boot situation on every yeah, Dell. The, the way, and the way the customer way it would, would
3: work. Pick. That's right. The way it would work is the machine would would turn on and it would say you know press one for windows and two for mac os or something like that <laughs> and it wow. would, it, then it would it would load yeah. the operating system we we
0: we knew how to do it technically it, was, it wasn't a big technical problem but if you think about that moment in time apple just could not get market share from windows windows was crushing it they were moving much faster they allowed any number you could anybody could make hardware for well their
3: their their share their share of PCs peaked bef- you know uh before
0: IBM introduced the PC. Right. So just going through the scenario, the what if, if Steve said, you know what, <laughs> just give me a dollar for every time they you, every PC you ship instead of probably he asked for fifty bucks or a hundred bucks Oh, you, you mean if he'd asked for a dollar for for every unit? Yeah, because what did he ask for? Fifty bucks or something? A hundred bucks? It it it, end, it ended up
3: being an, a, a kind of an obscene amount of money because Hundreds of, of millions be, a year be, be, because of the number of machines that we were shipping. Right. You know, by that point, we were we were shipping you know tens of millions of machines per year. <laughs> so,
0: um, but imagine the scenario when he said, "You know what? I just want to." Beat Microsoft. I want there to be more Mac OS machines than Windows machines. I'll give it to you for a hundred million dollars flat license fee. You take the deal, or fifty million, or whatever he gives it to you for. How would the industry have shaped up after that?
3: Yeah, i, I, I it's it's a great question, and you know one of the other open questions then was, okay, uh, you're offering us this deal, which isn't very good right now, right? what happens in 3 or 4 years and he ah. wouldn't he wouldn't commit to continually offering it to us you know in 5 years or 10 years which mm. i didn't like that at all because you know it could have been a situation where we we created a whole bunch of new users and and then you know uh, we 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 couldn't create a follow on product which wouldn't be a good good strategy for us
0: Take us through the laptop era because that you know was something I I was in IT at that time in the early 90s and Luggables came out and there were Dell had one and Compact and HP were all coming out with these you know seven eight pound laptops and I think Gates was on this very early Apple had one eventually um but it, it seemed like they really sucked and people were down on the market but you stuck with it explain that decision making. And what it was like, because these things didn't even have batteries at the time, I believe. They were just plug-in luggables that were what, eight pounds, nine pounds?
3: Well, no, they were much more and Compaq actually started, you know, with the original luggable. And the thing was basically like a huge, you know, briefcase. I think it weighed, you know, fifteen or twenty pounds. And it was it was basically a transportable computer desktop computer. You had to plug it in. But then, you know, as as you started to have better battery technology, first nickel metal hydride, and then lithium ion, as you started to have the transition from, you know, CRTs to LCDs, the miniaturization, you know, it it was clear that you were going to be able to have portable computers. And the other thing that needed to happen was the semiconductors needed to use less power because they were designed for a, you know, continuous active current. And that was just you know way too much power, and they wouldn't have long battery life so you know we every everybody in the industry was focused on how do you how do you make you know a machine that's the size of an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper right that's not super thick and you can go find videos of me proudly displaying you know these these machines which are kind of laughable by today's standards. You know, today it's like you've got super thin laptops and, yeah. <laughs> and incredibly powerful. But back then, you know, the, the idea of being able to take your computer with you was just amazing. You know, and yeah. we had, we had uh, modems. There was no, there was no wireless technology, but yeah. all of that was part of the, the origins of, of, you know, what, what we all
0: enjoy today. It, and, Take me to the moment tablets came out. Do you remember seeing like the ol- early prototypes of tablets and, and what did you think of that technology would eventually became iPads? But obviously, um, Bill Gates was super interested in this idea of flippable laptops where you could have a pen, etc. But he missed it and Jobs figured it out. Why?
3: Yeah, there, there, there was a lot of focus on, on pen computing and as you said gates and and microsoft had focused a lot on that but it never really stuck and you know windows was never really built you know to 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 work well with a with a pen you know and then and then jobs for you know all of his genius you know kind of went went from from iphone you know to ipad which was a great easy use, easy to use device i think at the time you know, one of the things that, that, uh, I remember about that, not only was it, you know, high growth, you had all sorts of, uh, you know, Android tablets that were springing up then. We got in that for, for a while, didn't turn out to be a particularly good business, you know, sort of an overcrowded space. And then it kind of waned as, as people saw that this was, a great device, but not necessarily a replacement for the phone or the or, or the PC. Hmm. And you know, if you you think about it, uh, you know, inside a company and we sell mostly to businesses, are you gonna are you gonna pay to to have every person in the company have a phone, a tablet, and a PC? You know, so you started having these convertible, you know, laptops that would flip over or detachable two in ones and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the things that that uh, kind of enabled us to go private in a way, right, was this idea that the smartphone and the tablet were going to just take over the PC. Nobody would buy PCs anymore. Right. And, you know, it got to a point where, you know, our, our, our valuation, I thought, was pretty ridiculous given the, the future prospects of the company.
0: Yeah. And, uh, what, what was the valuation back then? And, and I, it's, it's a great accounting of basically people coming to you and say, you know, what we think we can take this company private. And it was like, is that even possible at the time? Uh, and it's kind of like a barbarians at the gate kind of moment where you just have all of these private equity folks. And then eventually, you know, the the, the sharkiest guy of all Carl Icahn, comes in there and the joker. And, The Joker. He literally is like the Joker. He just, I'm gonna cause chaos. And he's like, should be retired, and he's just throwing bombs and burning people's money to try and make an extra three bucks a share or something. It's 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 kind of a sad figure in a way. Or 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 ten cents a share. Or ten cents a share. uh, Yeah. Um, so so basically what happens is all the predictions become nobody's ever buying a PC or a laptop again dell equals pc and laptop even though you had a huge server business at the time but basically server, we were like,
3: storage software services we had you know acquired tons of companies built all kinds of new things but nobody really cared you know they they associated us with the original business mm. which is still a great business by the way we're shipping more than ever and we had 27 percent growth last quarter in
0: pc revenue so <laughs> well that, i mean that's the great irony of it you know these machines have become so good if you look at today's modern laptops i mean the the jump in cameras audio the speed you know the speed of wi-fi everything has just come together to make them incredible bargains as a device for a thousand or two thousand dollars you have a, a machine that is extraordinary right and in the last
3: 18 months i think everybody got this real uh you know crystallization of how you know the 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 pc was the the way that they connected with whatever they were doing in the world All right. healthcare education work entertainment every aspect of their life the pc you know was was at the center of it not to say they weren't using other devices too you know i think it's it's an and not an or and so Going back to 2012, 2013, that uh, sort of situation, you know, created this, this opportunity to go private and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. All, going all private,
0: well. how did that help you with running the business and sort of reorganizing it, reframing it for the public markets and eventually going uh, public again?
3: Yeah, I, I felt the company needed to transform and move faster to create all the new capabilities that we've been able to build. Mm. And, you know, being public, your transformation is just rate limited. You know, mm. the market wants you to deliver certain things and, and actually the market didn't like the investments we were making in the new areas. Uh, and, you know, they, they wanted near term
0: earnings. Out of the existing business, but what were so, the yeah what what acquisitions uh, turned out to be the best ones, the most transformative?
3: Well, certainly the 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 massive one that we did after we went private, <laughs> right, was was EMC and VMware, yeah, and that was the biggest you know merger acquisition ever in in technology, and you know that's that's worked out super well. We added that at about uh, 30 billion in uh revenues in organic growth on, on wow. top of on top of the acquired companies and you know built a number one position in basically every form of cloud infrastructure um you know uh storage uh you know compute um you know backup cyber recovery
0: uh you know PC PC revenues as as well. How how do you look at Amazon Web Services as a competitor and just what they were able to build?
3: Well, they've done a great job. I mean, you know, the the the, the public cloud is is continuing to grow. You know, we, we see it as as kind of coopetition, and you know, customers want not the public cloud or the private cloud. You know, they want both. They want kind of this multi cloud environment. And increasingly we're seeing workloads showing up, you know, uh, you know, in, in many, many different places. There's a ton of growth at the edge. And, you know, as we look at everything in the world becoming intelligent and connected, the growth in computing at the edge is, is tremendous. And companies are figuring out where's the right place for any given workload. We also see, you know, uh, a lot of startups that, you know, kind of start in the public cloud and then they get to a certain scale and they say, well, you know, we're, we're spending uh, incredible amounts of money here. It's kind of like we're living in a really nice hotel, you know, Ah, (laughs) And, and, uh, and so gee, uh, you know, let's go to a colo. Dell build out infrastructure for us. We can still pay for it on a consumption basis and so you know it's it's still opex it's not it's not capex hmm. but it costs a lot less and so you 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 see you see uh lots of different models emerging beyond just everything to the public cloud i'm
0: curious um as we wrap here and encourage everybody to buy the book play nice uh, but when um take a pause here and just go buy it and i'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to it again with the audiobook when because I, ha- I didn't actually get to listen to yours i listened to a computer (laughs) speaking to me um (laughs) could you accept me a nice early pdf um i'm curious what you think of what is going on in china i know this is delicate because i'm sure you have deep relationships there um but we've seen you know some changes in how they look at entrepreneurship and the markets how should america manage this relationship with china and the region uh you know around it
3: well, I think there's a real risk of a, a bipolar world, you know, uh, emerging, and we may already be in, in the midst of that. I mean, we have a significant business in China, right? We, uh, you know, sell our products in China, and it's our it's our second largest market to sell our products after the United States. Hmm. So it's it's quite substantial, and we do a lot of things in China that are just for the Chinese market. Um, It's also a place where a lot of our suppliers, whether they're Chinese or not, have located their factories because China has made itself a really efficient place to process capital and labor. Hmm. And they've, you know, deterministically invested in strategic industries. I I think, you know, the U.S. is now starting to uh, wake up to the fact that it needs to invest in strategic industries and you see this focus on semiconductors for example which i really applaud because uh you know having all of that go you know uh, overseas is not it's not a wonderful thing yeah um so uh and 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 certainly as you know as we think about security and 5G and how embedded all these technologies are in the fabric of every aspect of our lives you know it's it's really important that we understand you know where the technology comes from, and we're we're quite involved in making sure we have a secure supply chain to to uh you know help help uh build that secure world
0: and entrepreneurship in America seems to be um you and I get to see companies because we both like to angel invest in them <laughs> and invest in them, so we see the best of it, but we're also seeing something generational maybe kind of people leaning a little bit socialist or maybe less um, uh, enthusiastic about capitalism as we grew up. I think we're both Gen Xers and it was kind of awesome to start a company and the technology space was something that was revered and we were loved and considered heroes and rebels and pirates and it's awesome what you're doing and now all of a sudden these companies are very big including yours including Google, Facebook, etc. They have bigger impacts and so maybe we're seeing a little bit of uh, concern. Do you think Some of these big tech companies should be broken up and that would be better for entrepreneurship. And then just generally, young people and their view of capitalism seems to be waning at the margins. What are your thoughts?
3: Yeah, you know, I I think- You and I talked about this over sushi (laughs) in a major way for hours. We did did talk about this. Look, I think think there are occasional rules for government when some of these businesses get too big and too powerful to step in. You know, um, I am a free market capitalist. All right. I'm not going to apologize for that. It's just, that's just what I am and, and it's what I believe. And, and look, I would be hopeful that, uh, you know, more people will, will have self determination, right, as their Mm. guiding principle, right? And, and they'll, and they'll want to go start companies. I mean, the great news is in America and in many places in the world, There's a lot of capital and a lot of bright, talented people who want to go start businesses and they're not sitting around complaining, waiting for the government to fix it or, uh, you know, you know, blaming it on somebody else. And I think those are the people that are going to build the future. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, that's that's kind of
0: how I think about it. Yeah. Less so the people may be complaining on Twitter about how unfair (laughs) the system is. When if you look at the system objectively, there's more capital available than there ever has been, more diversity we're seeing in tech. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary how much things have changed and, and the opportunity seems greater than ever. It does seem nice that Apple uh, lost this case for the, because I'm a free market uh, fan as well, but with the app stores and being closed, you know, something Apple always loved being, you know, from Steve Jobs on, it's kind of in their DNA. I'm wondering how you think about you know them losing the ability to control apps, or maybe just payments. Right now, they lost. But do you think it should be more open, like Windows is, Android is? Allow people to side load stuff if they want to, and 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 that's a good direction to go in.
3: You know, i i i i'd say I'd say I kind of like how Microsoft is is doing it. It's more open. We mm-hmm. we certainly have more choices but i'd even like more choices than that you know as 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 a as a microsoft partner yeah. uh so so you know uh you know you're not going to hear me ar- argue that that look i think i think open systems and the ability for a strong ecosystem to innovate are what drives a lot of progress i mean let's let's take this example of kind of 4g and 5g okay mm. What's happening with 5G is you have this disaggregation of the hardware and software layer, and all the functions in the network are becoming pieces of software. And there's an enormous ecosystem of new companies springing up that are building those pieces of software, whether they're here in the United States or in Ireland or Israel or you know Singapore or wherever, right? And so that kind of software-defined network to telco... Creating this open ecosystem, you're going to get way more innovation way faster than kind of the, you know, proprietary monolithic stacks that, that you have from the kind of historical telco world. So that's going to be better for customers. It's going to be better for innovation. It's going to be better for progress. So that's, yeah. that's, that's the side I, I'll,
0: I'll find myself on. Feels like there's another step function coming in access to broadband and just ultra-broadband, you know, people having gigabit speeds on their mobile devices, etc. gonna enable a whole new class of applications. And then, of course, you know, Starlink, what Elon's doing with satellites. I mean, the ability to beam high-speed internet anywhere from low-Earth orbit satellites, what impact do you think that all has?
3: Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, if, if you just think about, you know, what's happened in the last... Three or four decades, you know, that I've been doing this. I think it's all just a pregame show to what's about to come. Really? And what's so, about to come? <laughs> well, you, you get these low latency networks where every single thing in the world becomes intelligent and connected. It hmm. generates enormous amounts of data. All that data used with AI and machine learning turned into competitive advantage and better outcomes for Students, patients, business, society, etc. I think every aspect of the world gets upended, reinvented, reimagined. Hmm. That's super exciting, and yeah. I think it's going to happen faster than people think. Hmm. And uh, I think it'll it'll create tremendous opportunity, and and
0: you know it'll 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 be it'll be a great one for for many entrepreneurs. Well, listen, I want to talk to you for about five hours, but apparently. Despite all your massive success and taking this company private, public, private, public again, you got to get off this call to do a sales call. Michael Dell still <laughs> doing customer support calls. You're on a customer call after this, correct?
3: Yeah, I I mean I I I I I love meeting with customers. I thought that was my job. You know, it's kind of how you learn, right? You you mm-hmm. talk to your customers and you ask them how are we doing for you? How's it going? And uh, all of that, all of that is uh, is is important. And so, yeah, my 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 next call is is with a a great customer. Uh,
0: and uh, just to end this pandemic, is it going to end? And what will going back to work look like? What do you what do you think? Like, is this going to be a permanent work from home thing, or you're old school and you believe people need to be in an office to make great world class products? Um, I mean, you do have all these great monitors now, and and everybody's home setup seems to be working, so is work from home here to stay. I th-
3: I think work from home is here to stay. I think I think we have catapulted into the future, you know, and and what we had in the last 18 months was kind of a glimpse of what the future is going to look like. I think it'll be hybrid. Hmm. You know, we'll come back to physical offices at times for special events and to, you know, be together and to, you know, uh you know, uh, innovate and collaborate, you know, in a a way that we can't do over a Mm. screen. Um, But work is something you do. It's not a place. Mm. And I think we've all, you know, had that crystallized in our minds in the last 18 months. And I think we're all better for it. And people certainly love the flexibility. You know, each organization will decide what's right for them. But you know hybrids here to stay and uh turns out you need a lot more of everything we sell to to uh do that and look i didn't make up this game but it turns out you need a lot more of everything we we have to uh to play so
0: yeah absolutely all right listen michael uh thanks for coming on the program congrats on the book it's amazing everybody go buy it and uh hopefully i'll see you again soon when i'm in uh, austin awesome good luck on your customer support call michael